Hello, Three Points Parents. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Norm Tebow, and I'm grateful uh, to be able to speak to you again in another podcast. I have such a, a, a wonderful guest for us today, somebody I hold in the, in the highest esteem in, in, the, in the many wonderful people we've worked with uh, and adoption experts. Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo is the founder and CEO of the Center for Family Connections in Cambridge in New York, the Adoption Resource Center in Cambridge, the pre-post adoption consulting team in Cambridge and Family Connections Training Institute in Cambridge and New York. Dr. Pablo has served on numerous boards of adoption related organizations, which is where I first came to meet her uh, at the American Adoption Congress, gosh, about two decades ago. Uh, Dr. Pablo has done extensive training both nationally and internationally. She's a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and has lectured at Harvard, Smith, Wellesley, UCLA, USC, and Antioch, among other universities. She has consulted various public and private child welfare agencies, adoption agencies, schools, and community groups, as well as probate and family court judges, lawyers, and clergy. Additionally, she has worked closely with individuals, couples, and families with adoption-related issues, foster care issues, guardianship, and kinship as well as complex families formed through reproductive technology, single parent families, gay and lesbian families, and families through remarriage. Her constant chant is that adoption is about finding families for children, not about finding children for families. And although she is a family therapist with empathy for all parties, she keeps her focus on the best interests of the child. Her other mantra is that it takes a community to hold a family. And the wider community needs to understand the family of adoption. And boy, we, we at Three Point Center totally agree with that. And you know that as parents, that the wider community really does need to understand the needs uh, in, in the family of adoption. Joyce states that more than her degrees and honors, her most valuable credential is that she has experienced life as an adopted person. And she has love and great respect for both her birth and adoptive families. On a personal note, you guys, Many of you, many of our parents are aware that when I was looking to create Three Point Center, I consulted with a number of adoption experts. And it was in about 2003 when Joyce and I had a conference call. Uh, I had met her previously at the American Adoption Congress and a, and a dear friend of ours, a joint friend, Bruce Kellogg, put us in touch. Joyce was so gracious and kind to me. I explained to her, you know, the, the, that what we wanted to create here. And, and I asked her the question that we often hear, which is how does it make sense and how do we make sure we're doing the right thing when we're trying to work with an adoptive family, but in a treatment center, the child is not with the family. So she and I talked on that phone call about safety and the system at home when it's overwhelmed and how to incorporate the larger family system, adoptive and birth families. Um, we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about that. And her response at the end was, Norm, I don't think anybody's doing this. And that's why you need to do it. I remain so grateful to you, Joyce, this day for that conversation. Um, so grateful for all you've contributed to all of us working with adoptive families. And so welcome and, and thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Norm. It's nice to reconnect. It is indeed. Uh, Joyce, as, as I mentioned, you've been involved in adoption at a variety of levels throughout your life. Um, if you don't mind, share with, our, share with our listeners, how has your role in adoption changed through the years? Well, it's interesting. I always love to start a lecture or a talk by saying that I've been uh, in adoption for 73 years. And people then look at me and say, oh, my God, you look so young. But, <laughs> <laughs> but 
the, the fact is I was born and adopted 10 days later, and I grew up in the world of adoption in the late 40s and early 50s. And it was a very different system and a very different situation back then. Uh, and as I was growing up, you know, the 50s was uh, nobody spoke to children and nobody spoke to adults about most issues of psychological or emotional nature. Uh, you couldn't even say the word cancer out loud or asthma out loud. Um, people were very closed. And I was a seeker. I was curious and I wanted to know what was going on. I was told I was adopted and that was it. Wow. Uh, and, and really that was, my parents were fabulous. They were typical, very typical of the 1950s. Um, they didn't know any better. No one taught them any better. They were told by pediatricians and other people that you just go on as if and everything will be fine. And, um, and it wasn't fine. I mean, my family was fine. I, I, had, a, I had a pretty blessed uh, situation. And eventually, when I found my birth family, they were equally wonderful. So I, I, I do feel very lucky. Um, but the point is, it's very challenging being adopted. And it's very challenging for all of the parties involved. But as you said in your preamble, that my focus is on the child, because the child is the centerpiece. Without the child, there's no adoption. Right. So even though I have every ounce of empathy and I work closely with adoptive parents and birth parents, the child must be the focus in order to uh, really get the result that we want, which is strong and uh, capable people in the world who have grown up in an alternate kind of situation. And it, it really is. I mean, those people who told my parents, this is as if you gave birth to this child. And in those days, Norm, mm -hmm. the, um, there were so many babies after World War II that they could match kids pretty distinctly. My birth family and my adoptive family are all Irish, all Catholic. And when I go back to Ireland, which I, <clears throat> I do often for work, um, when I go back, I've searched and I've found both my birth family and my adoptive family's roots. And at some point, they're probably related to each other. <laughs> wow. I did not know that, Joyce. Yeah. It's, it's um, I mean, that's how closely they matched kids back then. Wow. And, um, and people may think that's a good thing. It was good for secrecy. Uh, no one looked at my family and immediately knew we were an adoptive family. Um, but actually, I, it's hard because you know you're adopted. And especially as you reach adolescence, it becomes really, really a huge interest in terms of developing um, your, your whole idea of yourself. And without having anyone acknowledge that, it's very difficult. Now, there's a different difficulty for kids who are transracially and internationally adopted right. because every, everyone takes a look at their family and immediately knows there's adoption. Um, but th those people become pretty invasive. They ask questions at times when you're, it doesn't mean you don't want to answer, but you don't want to be sort of accosted with these questions about adoption. Right, and, put on the spot. Yeah, absolutely. 
so both both the um, both situations cause trouble, and I think the biggest trouble comes from the lack of real education and understanding imparted to the adoptive and the birth families. But I don't think to this day people do a good enough job helping to prepare parents for what it's going to be like. And I think the parents who are, I, I was just speaking with a parent recently and doing a little psychoeducation, parents who have already have children by birth or who later have children by birth as well as children by adoption, um, I think they imagine that this will be fine, especially if they've successfully raised a couple of kids that they gave right. birth to. And they have, you know, they have family resources and they have a lot of love and they want to expand their family and they know there are kids that need that. So they adopt a child or two. And it is absolutely apples and oranges. Raising these kids is very different. And the less you acknowledge it, the more difficulty there is. Um, it's, it's just very different. The challenges are different. The emotional and psychological issues are different. And uh, to, try, to pretend that everything's the same is actually, it, it's counterintuitive and it doesn't work. Yeah. So, so anyway, a lot, I, I'm meandering through your question. I well, you, you, you've actually, George, you've done a wonderful job of highlighting a, 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 another question that I have, because you, you're speaking really to the heart of some of our parents here. Oftentimes they share with us that they were never told about block trust or complex trauma or developmental trauma prior yeah. to adopting. So what are your thoughts on the process of educating prospective adoptive parents on these matters? Um, well, especially when we know the majority of adoptions are considered successful, but yet people also need to know what could happen. Yeah. And what's success? You yeah, know, right. I mean, it's, uh, it's very different in different situations. And I think um, to, to go back to your first question. So when I was coming along, I, I wanted to go to medical school. I thought that that was my, my lot in life. And then I really hated science and math. I mean, I, <laughs> it, was not, it wasn't my forte, so that wasn't going to happen. So I, I wended my way to um, psychology and human development. And um, I ended up getting many, many, many degrees. And this is interesting. It's when you're adopted, this part of you that feels like you're not genuine, that you're you're not you're not valid you're not real in some way when kids say to their parents at age 12 you're not my real parents you can't tell me what to do um they're also feeling they're not real it, not only are, are you not their real parents meaning they didn't come from you um it, it they also mean i'm not real either uh, if i were real i would have been kept where i started and so all of that is very, very confusing, and it, it gets in the way of making sense of who you are. And I, I noticed that people weren't getting that. So I did all of my degrees, and I overdid. Um, I have uh, two masters, one of them from Harvard, and I have a dual doctorate from Harvard. Now, who needs all those degrees? I mean, 
First of all, I lived in Cambridge and I didn't want to go away. I was a single parent with a very young child when I did my doctoral work. And um, so I was lucky I got in because if I didn't, I don't know what my next move would have been. I didn't have one figured out. Um, (laughs) It was quite fortuitous (laughs) for you. (laughs) But the reason I chose Harvard, not only because it was in my backyard, but I didn't feel like my field of interest, which didn't exist, by the way, was going to be legitimized in most places. And what better legitimization than Harvard University? So so I I figured, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go here. And it was interesting. My, My professors were very interested in what I was doing, but they kept saying, Joyce, There is no psychology of adoption. What do you think you're doing? And I would say, you have no idea. The psychology of adoption is huge. It's, you'll see, you'll see. I have to say, isn't it just stunningly sad that that was the position? I mean, I I understand it, I get it. But, but, uh, you know, my, my, one of my passions is the fact that until we really acknowledge this in, uh, as many of you know, the DSM, until the, the entire field of mental health acknowledges this, all clinicians coming out of graduate school are going to be handicapped towards working with adopted children. That's right. That's right. And not only, I, I spent my life, you know, uh, developing uh, models for treatment and models for training. And along with um, Gary Mallon in New York at Hunter Graduate School of Social Work, we had some wonderful federal and state, New York State funding to develop a year-long program, a postdoctoral course in adoption therapy. And it, um, there was enough money for it to go for, I think I might be exaggerating by saying six years. It went at least four years. And it was a year-long course. Uh, People came for long, intensive weekends from all over the state of New York, from New Jersey, Pennsylvania. People, you know, it was a, a fascinating course that we developed because it was something that people were hungry for. They absolutely wanted to learn as much as they could. And you need to in order to serve this population. Um, And, you know, it's one of the things, one of the reasons I started a clinic um, that was specializing in this area was that um, no one really understood this in a way that was helpful. We would have adopted parents come to our clinic and they would tell us over and over and over again, we've been to at least seven different therapists before we found you guys and you really understand it. And so think of the time and the, the importance of the wasting of time trying to get help for your child and as the child or adolescent trying to be helped and having the person you're sitting with not have a clue. And some of these were excellent, well-known therapists. I mean, these parents, as you know, adoptive parents go out of their way to learn everything and to find the best. Yep. And, and they, so they would find the best therapist that all their friends recommended. And that person is outstanding in their particular field but they haven't got a clue about adoption. And unless you're adoption competent, you miss too many things and you, uh, 
you 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 need to normalize the issues of these kids. You can't keep pathologizing them. And what I see is ongoing pathology that really isn't right many of the times. Can can you speak to to that a little deeper, Joyce? When you say help our parents understand, when you say pathologizing it, you know, uh, people hear diagnoses, things like that. T- tell us what you're thinking. Well, you know, I, I'll send you a copy of my ages and stages form. I, I think you may have it already, but I'll send it again after our call so you can post it. Um, I, I would love to share it with our parents. Yeah, one of the things I did at Harvard was to look at the developmental issues for kids through adolescence and then to talk about what was normal under the circumstances of adoption. So the way a a normal child should look, the things they should be doing at different stages and how we how we think about that clinically um, are different for adopted kids. So it was assumed there was something wrong with them and it was considered a pathology. There's an illness, there's something wrong. And um, so to me, there, that's not something wrong. It's something normal under the circumstances of adoption, that the way these kids act at certain points in time is completely expected because they're struggling with things that kids really don't have the ability to make sense of. I mean, you have to tell kids they're adopted when they're very young, yeah. but they don't always, some, some are, are more advanced than others, but most kids are pretty concrete until they're adolescents and they don't really understand all of this. And so it just makes things very, very complicated makes their, you know, how to make meaning of who you are and why you are in the world and why people didn't keep you and what happened to you. And, you know, there's so many question marks, so many things that, you know, and when you ask a child, do you ever think about adoption? They say no. Right, Um, right. most, Most of them say no, because they don't think about the word quote unquote adoption and they're very concrete thinkers but that doesn't mean they're not thinking about their family of origin it doesn't mean they're not thinking about what happened to me why wasn't I kept it doesn't mean and they don't equate that with adoption that's just what they're thinking about so we're asking the wrong questions if we ask them do you ever think about adoption and a lot of parents are relieved when the kid says no they're like, oh, good. They're, you know, because parents will come in and they'll want to know what's going on with my child. Is Are they having difficulties with their siblings? Or is this about adoption? Or is this some other developmental problem? And really, it's all of the above in the case of adoption. Yeah. Um, but if, if you don't understand it, you can misjudge and you can suggest the wrong things. For instance, Norm, you know this as well as I do. Uh, Way too many kids are given the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. I I, I think, I'm not exaggerating, if it's not 100% of the kids on this campus have been diagnosed that way, it's at least 99%. I promise you, when they come in with that diagnosis. Well, it's easy to assume that. And, you know, I've had I've had my little wranglings with various teachers and pediatricians over the years. Um, I remember I was, I was, 
people can't see me, so they don't know that I still, at 73, have red hair. And uh, when I was little, my mother used to blame everything on my red hair. So she would blame my, my temper. She would blame, she'd just say, oh, my God, it's because you have red hair. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm a little feisty sometimes, and I'm outspoken sometimes. And I, I think you know that, uh, Norm. It's, I, it's, I admire <laughs> and respect it, and I'm very aware of it. <laughs> it, it, can also be, it can also be a little obnoxious now and then, and I'm well aware of that at my, at my age. But um, I remember being a little obnoxious to this poor fifth grade teacher who I was, I had a signed release from the family and I called the teacher because she had told the family that the child had ADD and needed to be treated and needed to be on medication. So I called the teacher and I said, Miss Murphy, I'm so impressed with you. And she said, oh, well, thank you. And I said, um, I'm so impressed that you have your MD and that you went into the field of teaching fifth graders instead of practicing medicine. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, I heard that you diagnosed and prescribed for a fifth grader. And I'm a little bit shocked if you're not licensed as a medical doctor or licensed in some way. Oh my How goodness. So, I mean, I really laid it on the line because it's just wrong. Yeah. And there are so many pediatricians who are lovely pediatricians, but they go beyond their scope. They don't sit up nights reading the latest psychopharmacology journals. They're busy dealing with, uh, you know, flus and, and uh, you know, normal childhood diseases and, and things of that sort. So when they prescribe something, it upsets me because they really don't have a full idea of of what's going on you should always go to like a psychopharmacologist rather than a pediatrician if you think your child needs some kind of medication and um so these are the things that that i think are really really hard and those are the pathology based items that go on so adhd has certain attributes but those same attributes are there if you have an anxious depressed child and what child of adoption doesn't have some depression and anxiety. None. They all suffered early loss and um, they all have some bit of that. And the other thing is post-traumatic stress. I mean, PTSD is, has the same characteristics. So we want to make sure we're diagnosing the child correctly or we can't treat the child correctly. And I think that's, uh, I think many people just take a big glance at kids who are adopted or in foster care and make these generalizations that are absurd. I, I completely agree with you. And I, and I will still say much of that rests on the field of psychology and mental health and we as practitioners, because and again, until it changes in graduate schools, until, the, until we acknowledge the problem, until we acknowledge the depth of the problem, we're, we're just still doing the same thing over and again um, yep. as we produce clinicians. And, you know, the, the, the other part, society on the whole, you know, uh, Joyce, as I think about it, because what happens to a child who acts, just as you're indicating, who would be acting typically normal given the course of their lives, we punish them. We put yeah. them in in-school suspension or we suspend them or, you know, um, we, we do these punitive measures, which even, you know, induces more shame. Um, 
and so where do they turn? How do, how do they really find somebody who does connect with them, who can help the parents understand this is actually a normative process for what your child has been through? And it's, it's not just the mental health field. Of course, it would be superb if more mental health people had expertise and were adoption competent, but it's also educators. Um, it is because they, it flows together. One of the things that I'm well aware of <coughs> is that kids who are adopted internationally and come here with another language, they um, come to a family that doesn't speak their language of origin. And so, you know, they have no way to continue that language. And it's amazing how quickly they learn English. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they comprehend it. So when you take a child and you put them in the second grade because they're the right age for second grade, and they've lived in an orphanage where they haven't had very much education at all, and it was in another language, um, you know, you cannot expect them to have the foundation they need to really understand what they're taking in. And soon it will catch up with them. And soon they will think they're stupid. And soon that will, that will erode their, their self-respect and their self-esteem, and they will start acting out. And I think that it is, we really need to do something different. And for kids in foster care, they're moved from house to house to house. Yeah. And with that, they're moved from school to school to school. And you know that if you're out for two weeks from school, you um, even if your sibling brings home your homework, you're behind. You've missed the classwork. You've missed the conversation. You've missed what's going on. Um, well, what if you go from one third grade in one part of, part of the city to another where they're teaching something entirely different? You've, you've just lost a whole piece of your education. So what's going on with these kids is very complicated and it's more than it's more than their mental health, although that's a huge part of it. They're also losing their education and they're losing some other advantages that they really could have. Now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears for for a bit. You uh, Joyce, you know, as we talk about anxiety, you're, you're a strong advocate uh, for open adoption. Uh, research on healthy outcomes supports this. A number of our families have, um, you know, they've adopted children from foster care or they've adopted them privately from situations that were not really the best for the kids. And a lot of our, a lot of our adoptive parents have, some, have considerable anxiety about the connection with the birth parents. Um, where do you, I guess, is there a line that you draw? How do you manage, you know, healthy relationships versus healthy influences? Um, have you any guidance for our parents in managing that? Absolutely. Um, I want to ask first, Norm, how old are the kids that are at your program? Between 12 and 18. Generally. Great. Uh, yeah. Great. And our, 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 um, the most common age is about 15, 16. Terrific. So here's the thing. I believe, and you know, no one has to believe what I believe, but I've done so much work for so many years. And I, I, I think it, this, we, if we had tons of time, I'd go into detail about why I believe this, but I believe that kids are healthiest when they have all the information they can about themselves so that they can learn to integrate it. Mm 
And I think that one of the jobs of adoptive parents is to help your kids to integrate who they are and grow up and become adults, become functioning good adults. And I think it's hard to do that if you don't have all of the equipment and all of the information. And I, I also think that kids are quick to assume, for good reason, that the adults are lying to them or they're keeping things from them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in adoption, we are and we have. Their yeah. records have been locked and sealed. They're not allowed to know very much for what seems like a good reason. I mean, if your child came from a very difficult background, you don't want to have to explain that to a four-year-old or to an eight-year-old. It, it's going to be difficult. But there are ways you can explain the structure, but not the content. But by the time you get to a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 18-year-old, they're struggling with self-esteem. They're struggling with their identity. And they really need to know certain things. It's really what they need to know. Now, people used to think you shouldn't do anything with minors. Kids under 18 shouldn't have any information and you shouldn't uh, try to connect with anyone. I, I think that's crazy. What is so magical about turning 18 and then being able to do all of this? I think 18-year-olds are retarded. I, I'm, I know I'm not supposed to use that word, and I don't mean it in a, <laughs> what, what, I, what I mean is 18-year-olds have no clue. They're just figuring themselves out, right. and it's a, it's a horrible time to all of a sudden let them loose and let them find out some difficult information. It would be much better if the people they trusted most, their parents, had helped them to find out this information earlier than that. So I think it, it's extremely, and I know parents are afraid of this often, and, and I understand that completely. But in this day and age, one of the things, Norm, that, that parents need to understand is that kids can find anyone. They're unbelievably good with uh, social media, with DNA kits. They, I mean, they can find anyone. There are no more secrets. I have, worked with, I have worked with a million kids. I worked with an 11-year-old who was having a secret relationship with his birth father um, on social media, and nobody knew about it. Thank goodness he told his school guidance counselor, and um, she contacted me to, because she heard about the work that I did and said, what should she do? Should she tell his parents? You know, and it's a, the reason that's a valid question is if she wants to keep trust with this kid right. um, and she tells the parents he won't have anyone to talk to. So how do you address this? How do you deal with it? What do you do? And I think these are questions that come up all the time. And in this day and age, you cannot keep secrets. So I feel it's much better for the parents to be in, to learn more about the birth parents and to figure out how to contain the situation in a positive way so that it, it doesn't happen in a bizarre, you know, off the record, rogue fashion. And I think that that's, that's pretty essential. We, when we've, I, had, we've had parents who've, who've, who, you know, who've asked, how do I frame such a horrific 
experience as a positive light. You mentioned content versus process. Can you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't. Okay, so what if you were the product of rape? And um, what if your child was the product of rape? And um, you're not going to tell your four-year-old or your eight-year-old that. But your 13 or 14-year-old who's asking question after question after question, the way I would handle that is I, I would, well, personally, what I do is I ask permission to be in touch with the birth mother. The birth mother is where you came from. So, you know, that's the first search that people do way before the birth father or siblings. So um, I, would, I would be in touch with the birth mother. I would do a full interview of her. I'd get her permission and say, you know, the adoptive family of your child is, um, you know, they were never told what kinds of questions and concerns this child might have. And, and he has very valid questions and concerns. And you're the only one who can answer some of them. Will you be willing to talk to me? And if you feel comfortable, would you be willing to talk to the adoptive parents? And so after I sort of educate a little bit, then we do a call with the adopted parents and the birth parent, birth mother. And um, we talk about what's going on for this child, how, what a difficult time he's having. And, you know, he keeps asking what the story is and why he wasn't kept. And what we need to do is answer truthfully, but simply. And so we help the birth mother too, to reframe how she's going to talk about it. First of all, she's the only one who can talk about the birth father and what happened. Right. Because what, whatever was written in anybody's notes from the social worker, the agency, the lawyer, is third-party information. And, you know, I would never discount the reality of any woman. But I have worked with a lot of birth mothers over the years who couldn't tell their parents that they had voluntary sex with a man because they're, you know, for, because of religious beliefs or, or ethics, the parents would not hear that and would have been furious. Yeah. So a lot of birth mothers um, said they were, they were raped. And many times it's true, but many times it really was the safer answer to get people not to think ill of you, you know, so we don't know what the answer is. We don't know what happened in that situation. And, and what we do know is that she's the only one who can answer that question for this 15-year-old. So what is she going to say? And so we talk about that. And we talk about the fact that, you know, okay, in this particular case that I'm thinking of, it was, it was a sort of date rape. It was, she, she didn't agree to... Um, to the sexual encounter. And um, so how is she going to tell her 15 year old? She's going to say, you know, sometimes people don't listen when you say no. And, um, and I wasn't ready to have sex and I wasn't ready to have a baby. And um, meanwhile, I wanted you to have a really good life. And I, you know, I, I, I kept my pregnancy and I made sure that I found parents that would take good care of you and I don't know very much about your birth father because we didn't have a real relationship 
And that's hard information. It's true information. And it isn't the whole story if because we don't know the whole story. Right. And, um, and we don't know, you know, what else. We don't know what the birth father would say if we interviewed him. True. But meanwhile, it's, you know, some reality because kids want, kids want to know. The other thing, if the birth mother was very young, in a lot of cases, the birth mother was under 18 herself. She really isn't the uh, person who gave the child up for adoption. Her parents had to sign. And, um, you know, there, there had to be, in, in different states have different rules about this, but in many states, at least one parent has to give permission if a, if a young woman is either having an abortion or placing a child for adoption. It really isn't her choice. Um, or the judge has to decide, you know, so someone is going to make that decision other than the 16 year old girl who's pregnant. And that's, that's important for the adoptee to know because they're busy being very angry at their birth mother. And in fact, you're the same age that she was and think about your friends. Think about you, what you would do if this happened to you, how would you be able to handle it? Right. And really think about that and have some empathy for what might have been going on and some understanding. And it had very little to do with you as a person and everything to do with the situation. And I think kids can take that in. You know, you, 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 you bring up another question. I hadn't thought of asking this, but I'm going to because it, it, I think it dovetails with it. The majority of the kids we work with. Joyce, and, and I know you're familiar with this, they target their adoptive moms more frequently than anyone else. They are, uh, the, you know, the target for the anger. Yep. A few different theories out there about that. What are your thoughts about why that happens? Well, it's just like I mentioned that the first search is for the birth mother, yeah. because that's, yeah. where, that's where you came from. You grew in her, inside of her. So that's your first home. That's, that's the, the root and, you know, and if you were brought up for your first few months or years in an orphanage or in a foster home, uh, 90, I don't know what the percentage would be, 94% of those situations are all women caregivers. There's not a man, I mean, maybe at the highest level of an orphanage system in Russia, there's a man, but it's all women running the the orphanages so a woman gave you away it seemed you know it's really how kids take it in my birth mother didn't keep me men are given a little bit of a I mean men can stick around or not and society has given them a little more of a break which is not a good thing Um, but it's easier to uh, excuse your birth father than it is your birth mother right and so, you know, when kids come home from an orphanage uh, uh, with many parents over the years, it's very painful for the adoptive moms who have waited ages to start their family and they finally have their little baby in their arms. And this baby it sort of ignores them and only likes the dad. Um, the dad's interesting and not scary because they haven't had encounters with men. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting that a lot of uh, adoptive families, the, the mom feels a bit rejected. And, um, and that's very, very hard. And I think kids, kids are, they become angriest at women, at the mother figures. And yeah. the adoptive mother is the person right in front of them. So she gets all of the venom. She gets all of the anger. And it's not really helpful to say to someone, it's not personal, because it certainly feels personal. Sure it does. The poor mom. But it really isn't personal. It's really a weird projection of a lot of feelings. And, um, and I think it's very, very hard. And what we forget sometimes is that the, all of the parties involved are going through loss and difficulty. And um, adoptive parents might be thinking, if this was my child by birth, they wouldn't be doing this. Well, those of us who have children by birth know that's not exactly right. But yeah. it's, you know, there's this little doubt that you're, you're real, you know, and there's this, this feeling of inauthenticity that's upsetting for everyone involved. The same for the birth parent, because they didn't raise the child. They don't feel authentic. They're not, I mean, you call them the mother because they gave birth, but they didn't parent the child. And so they don't feel authentic sometimes when they're asked certain questions or when they're thinking about certain things and I think kids have a really hard time all the more this goes back to the open adoption the more information we have and the more we open the communication to talk about everyone involved the better oh you you, you say that so well you really do <laughs> I wish I could I wish I could borrow your brain sometimes Joyce I really do <laughs> um, well you bet you better borrow it soon, Norm. It's getting a little ancient soon. Oh, nonsense. in my dotage. But you know, th this reminds me of something else I wanted to say. Um, I had an experience when I was about, I don't know, between 12 and 14. And, you know, I was a bratty adoptee. I had a sister who was six years older who was also adopted, but from a different birth family. And um and I was very close to my adoptive mother. I, I really, really liked, I don't, not only loved her, I really liked her. We had a good time together, except when I was in my adolescence. And then I was awful. And I remember, you know, my way of saying you're not my real mother was on Mother's Day when I was about 13. I came downstairs for breakfast and I started calling her by her first name. Oh, wow. And I said, what are we having for breakfast, Sarah? And my father leapt. My father was the most mild-mannered man in the history of the world. But he leapt up and almost pinned me to the wall. I wow. mean, this is, I'm exaggerating, but it was so stark because it was nothing he would ever do. And he said, do not disrespect your mother. She's your mother. But it was my way of saying, you're not really my mother. It's Mother's Day. But, you know, I have another mother. I don't know. And I couldn't say those words, but I could be flippant and I could, you know. Well, luckily, my mother thought it was funny. And, and really? She it was, yeah, she thought it was sort of cool. So she, she really didn't react, which diffused the whole situation. <laughs> right. Um, 
But but the story I want to tell you is that I was babysitting for the little girl across the street from our house when I this is around the same time around around thirteen, and um, her mom was still home getting dressed and I was downstairs with the little girl. She, the mom was going to some appointment. She wasn't going to be gone that long, and I was just going to stay there in the house with the with the two year old. And all of a sudden, the mom went upstairs to grab her purse or something, and she, I heard this blood-curdling scream. And so I picked up the baby and ran up to the top of the stairs and asked if she was all right. And she said, would you please call your mom and tell her? So I called my mother, and I said, something's wrong. Can you come over? And she did. Long story short, uh, mother who I can't Mrs. Avis couldn't um she was having a miscarriage and it was yeah and so I overheard my mother and and she speaking about it and they were getting an ambulance and they were going to take her to the hospital and everything but my mom was explaining to her that she had had two miscarriages before she adopted us and she was you know soothing her and and saying it's okay, you know, a lot of people have miscarriages and then have children afterwards. It's, you know, it's, it, and so I, she was, I was listening to this. I was playing with the little baby and I was listening to this conversation. And I swear, this is the first time I ever saw my adoptive mother as a real person, you know, she in that way. Yeah. It was. Uh, you know, and adoptive parents don't talk about their miscarriages or their losses. And most adoptive parents have gone through some infertility and some difficulty to get to the point of adoption. And it's something they don't really talk about. And not that you should talk about it with little kids and, and everything. But I was of an age where I really understood the gravity of it. And it made me have much more empathy for my adoptive mother than I had had before. And I think that was a really good thing. So all I'm saying is we don't communicate enough about the things that are real and that connect us. And it, especially in adolescence, it's really, really important to make those connections and to see, you know, how, what's going on and how we're all connected and, and what we all lost and what we all gained. Wow. Wow. Those are excellent points, Joyce. Wonderful points. You know, as, as we're speaking about making those connections, one thing we all have in common right now is we're living in unpredictable times. We're with the COVID situation, you know, talk about anxiety for parents. I mean, um, you know, they all want to comfort their children and yet they're here at Three Point Center. Currently, you know, we're not allowing visits. Um, I mean, it's just kind of a, a, an upheaval of the of the family connection, unfortunately. Thankfully, it's temporary. Nevertheless, it's stressful for parents, for students. Uh, any, any words of wisdom you might have, anything you would suggest to parents in managing their own feelings and in, and in providing comfort to their kids uh, about the COVID or the pandemic? Well, it's, it's definitely weird, unprecedented, and really strange. That's all true. I, I hope our kids having FaceTime with their parents and their families. They are. Great. Well, you know what I'm learning is that a lot of times that FaceTime can be safer to have some hard discussions. I, I'm having some very interesting therapy sessions with kids and parents 
that it would take a lot longer to get to in my office. Um, and because everyone's in a different room and they don't have to look at each other and they're, you know, I mean, even kids who are in their house with their parents, but they, they make the call from their phone in their room. And, um, it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's a, it's a shame and you do miss the see, feel, touch and, um, being able to make sure your kid's okay and your parents are okay. But I do think there's an opportunity to use that in a positive way. And, and I don't know if everyone's taking enough advantage of that. Uh, and I think that would be important. The other thing that I think is important is kids are frightened because they know people are dying. And what if their parents die? What will become of them? So there's a lot of increased anxiety. Not only that, it's a pandemic. Everyone in the world has it. So your birth parents who may live in Connecticut or may live in uh, Beijing could have it and they could be dying. So kids are, uh, you know, expanding their fears and their anxieties because this is a big deal and it's everywhere. And it's causing a lot of the adoptees that I work with to want to search even more. They want to make, yeah, because they really want to make sure everyone's okay. They're very, very worried about what might be going on. And, um, you know, they just want to make sure that everyone's all right. Yeah. And that's, you know, legitimate. I mean, it makes sense. So, uh, you know, and the other thing is, fascinatingly, one of the birth mothers that I work with said that her anxiety was through the ceiling and she actually was going to go and talk about medications. We had talked about this in the past, but she was doing very well and she didn't need medication. But this quarantine business was a triggering for her when she was pregnant with her son, who's now 35. Um, he was adopted and it was a closed adoption and she just met him within the last year. And so um, she, all of a sudden during this quarantine, remembered that when she was pregnant, she was 16 years old, turning, she was 17 when she had him, and she had to drop out of school, and her best friend would bring her homework and wasn't allowed to see her, but would drop it at the door of her house. So now the uh, Amazon people are dropping things at the door, and you can't really go out and you're in your it's it's a deja vu of this time when she was quarantined with her pregnancy wow so it's bringing up so many fears and so many you know just feelings of that are triggered for her so i think everyone is having reactions to this it's very weird and it's um lasting a long time and you guys are in an early state. We're, we're sort of on the downswing here in Massachusetts, but I, you, you're having an outburst right now. Yeah, right? We're, we're, it was interesting. Back in April, my son works at the local hospital, and, and uh, the director of the hospital shared that we're probably going to peak in June in our area. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. So we're, we're peaking now. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the it's it's just scary and it's it's good for families to know that their kids are in a safe place and that you're paying all the attention you can to things and that they're learning as much as they can about the about this um 
about this pandemic and about this virus and about what they can do and what they can't do. Um, you know, it's a lot of extra work for everyone involved. Um, but I, that, you know, I think the silver lining is, you know, being able to really pay attention to what's important and using those Skype and Zoom times and doing them in a way that really, you know, it, you can have some amazing conversations and some real connection uh, in that that fear and anxiety can open you up also that's a great point that's a really good point and and you know it goes to normalizing feelings just because they're unpleasant feelings doesn't mean they're not expected or normal that's right that's right yeah. and what, what i keep saying to kids is you know you're not alone everyone in the world i mean you know most things that happen to you you feel like why me and it's happening to you. This is a case where every single person in the world could be exposed to this. You're not alone. I mean, it's there's huge numbers of people who are dealing with this, and it's you know you're you're in good company, even though it's a bad thing. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and well, then you know, I I think it's fascinating too, what's happening with school. I, I have a number of kids and families that I'm working with right now, and some of them are in, you know, it's not all private schools that have this, but many of the private schools, everyone in the school has an iPad and everyone in the right away, they had the teachers trained and they had the, the Zoom classrooms or whatever platform they were using all set up. And the kids continued with their work in a, in a pretty seamless way. It was quite interesting. And then a lot of the public schools, not all, some of them were equally, if not better than the private schools, but some of the public schools, especially in more disadvantaged areas, the kids didn't have access to what they needed and the teachers couldn't get what they needed. And it was a slow start and some of them missed a ton of time. Yeah. And, 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 you know, really, that's going to affect their lives and, and their knowledge in so many ways. So that's been an interesting thing that I hope we learn something from. And then the um, kids who are only children who are sort of alone with these adults that you live with <laughs> called parents. <laughs> and, um, and they're, you know, they're having a really, really hard time. I have one little um, 13-year-old that I talk to once a week. Um, and I talked to her with her mom at the beginning, and then we talk alone, and then her mom comes back in for the end of the conversation. And a couple of weeks into the quarantine, she uh, pierced her ears. Can, I mean, she just went and got needles, and like wow. in the old school day. And so her mother was freaked out and said, you know what she did this week? She pierced her ears. So I said to her, you know, Lucy, I didn't think you were that stupid. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, I always, you know, really respected you and thought you were smart, but you're scared to death of this virus. And you've now done your ears so that they might get infected and you might have to go to the hospital and be exposed to all those people with this virus. And she gulped. She said, oh, I didn't think of that. I said, that's the reason you discuss this with adults before you do it. And so we had this very long conversation about stupid things that kids do when they're alone and, and miserable. And, you know. Well, and, and even when they're not alone, if I may, we have, we right. have some students here who this week 
have been trying to contract the virus from the kids who are quarantined. And so, you know, they try to, if those kids are outside in a group, and obviously we keep them separate from the other kids, they're, they want to break away from their group and run over to them. And, and, I, and I think a lot of it is a product of the anxiety that they're all feeling. Um, because they've had to, we've had to switch groups up to keep the quarantine kids separate from the kids who have not tested positive. Some of them miss their groups, they miss other people. And, and we all know that, that unexpected changes are so yep. challenging for some of the kids. And so we know why they're doing what they're doing. But you're right. Sometimes those decisions just don't make a whole lot of sense. No. And you wonder, I mean, is it survivor guilt? Do they want to have it so they'll be like the other kids? Or yeah. is it, have they heard enough news that they know that if they get antibodies, it'll be good. They won't be, you know, as likely to catch it again. Uh, right. You just don't know what their rationale is. But there's always a rationale. I mean, yeah, there's there always is. some bizarre reason they're doing what they're doing. And we've kind of taken the same tack as you and just been very truthful, which is, you know, the longer you, this prolongs, if you get it, then there's two weeks there beyond for quarantine. And so the longer we extend this, the longer we won't be able to have visits and we won't be able to do some of the things we really want to do. Um, so just trying to appeal to that side uh, is, is one of the things that we're doing to try to contain that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, you know, but Sweden tried the herd mentality thing. They tried to get everyone infected just because they thought that would, that would quell it much more quickly, but it didn't work out that way. So, um, so I think we have to stick with the CDC's rules. Yeah. Yeah. We, and we've been, thankfully we have a great department of health who we've been in contact with literally every day since, uh, since this has uh, happened and they've been wonderful to work with. They really have, they've given us directives and we followed them and that's, that's all we're going to do. We're just going to do it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Now I, I, we're going to wrap up here, Joyce, but before we do, you, you have a consulting and, and coaching um, enterprise. Can you talk to our parents a little bit about that and what you do? Because there may be some here who, who would love to reach out to you as a resource. And I'll say if, from personal experience, if you're ever in Cambridge, look Joyce up because I tell you, she knows all the fun little places to eat there right close to Harvard. <laughs> I do. I, I'm a bit of a foodie. I like to eat. I really miss my restaurants in this pandemic, I must yeah. say. But um, yeah, I have, uh, I closed my clinic in 2012 and I started a private practice kind of place. I still do training of interns and I still, I'm still pretty active with my work. What's been interesting about this pandemic is I've done a lot of distance work for a long time. I do a lot of consulting and coaching with people all over the world. I, I've always had clients in London. I have some in Israel. I have, you know, I have people in different places. Sure. But what, what's interesting in this pandemic is I'm getting more clients. Clients have to do teletherapy anyway. So um, why find someone in your area who doesn't know about adoption when you can find someone who does? So I, I think it's been very interesting. And I've been able to, you know, also provide some resources and find some other adoption competent people that might be closer to where people are. Um, but I, I think consultations can be very helpful. Sometimes people only need a 50,000 mile checkup. Yeah. Sometimes people don't really need quote unquote therapy. They need a little bit of education, a little bit of support and a little bit of direction. 
and then they're on their way. So I, there's lots of different things. I, I just had a call, Norm, it's funny, uh, from Bangalore. And there are 150 families in Bangalore that have been getting together to talk about adoption. Most of them have adolescent children. Really? And, yeah. And so I'm going to do a Zoom training discussion with the families. And then uh, I've, I've suggested, we don't know if we're going to do this, but I've suggested that I might do a consult with a couple of the families in front of the other 148 families. And um, so everyone can learn from, from what we're doing. So well, there are some interesting things going on. I'm also working in Argentina with a young psychologist who's also adopted and she wants to start a clinic like the one I had for many years. And oh, so I've been working with her and her, her family therapy mentors in Buenos Aires. And um, so it's fun every day when uh, my daughter lives upstairs and I'll be upstairs uh, visiting her, having some coffee. And then I'll say, oh, got to run. I have to go to Vietnam this morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's wonderful. It is funny. It is funny. So, oh, but that, anyway, that. it's, it's great. It's, I think, you know, we've learned a lot about how to access different kinds of services because of this pandemic. And I think that's terrific. I, I, uh, what we'll do is when I send out the link, when we send out the link to the podcast, we'll include your contact information and your website so that parents know how to reach out to you for terrific for questions. Terrific. Um, that's great. One other thing, if I may, Joyce, will you please yeah. tell us about your book, The Family of Adoption? Yes, The Family of Adoption is a book that I've written in two iterations that I'm working on the third. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, I'm also working on something else, but I really slowed down. My, I, I write in bits and spurts, and so um, it's coming along, but very slowly. The Family of Adoption, I had an interesting time writing that. It is, I wanted it to be very, um, very available to anybody who picked it up. And it was, it was written to be both a text and a trade book. So it's used in a lot of trainings, but it's also very readable. And it's mostly the way that I teach is by telling stories. So it's, it's stories to illustrate what goes on in different aspects of adoption. So there are chapters on birth families. There are chapters on adoptive families. There are chapters on different issues that come up in the life of a child, school age, and, and then adolescence, et cetera. Um, it's, you know, the, the newest version that's not out yet is... Uh, a little more detailed and the end of it, I, I have some ideas about completely deconstructing and reconstructing the world of adoption and foster care. I think we're doing it all wrong. Yeah. And, oh, I would um, love to. Yeah. I would yep, love to. Yep. Well, yeah. I think, I think we've learned enough to know that there are some very, you know, it's interesting um, looking at all of the issues that are going on with, uh, you know, systemic racism Mm -hmm. Well, all of that is going on in the child welfare world and in education as well. And it's um, for many of the families that have kids who are transracially or internationally adopted, it's, this is very, very important. Those kids are paying close attention. 
uh, we didn't talk about this, but in addition to the pandemic, we've got all of this, you know, very important work going on in terms of, you know, equality and what's wrong with uh, how we treat certain people in this in this country Indeed. and what we what we need to do differently. And so that's been, you know, that's been very very fascinating and kids are really I had the most amazing conversation with a 14 year old and her mother the other day she was trying to teach her mother wasn't willing to say she was racist and I said we all are anyone who was brought up in this culture is what you have to be is anti-racist you have to you have to realize that you are in order to help to make it different mm -hmm. um you it, it and it's you know in the best interest of your child, who's a child of color, you really need to listen to what they're telling you because they have experiences that you'll never, you'll never know unless you listen to them. And so um, there's a lot going on in the world right now. And I think because we're quarantined and we have more time to think about it, that has both good and bad bits to it because uh, you can overthink everything and you can you know, I, I, you can get into some arguments that aren't in your very best interest. So I, I, it's complicated. <laughs> that was, that was well said, but I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's, you know, it's wonderful change that's happening in the world and we'll come out of it at some way. And, and the question becomes, in what condition are we going to be emotionally, mentally, spiritually, what have you uh, mm -hmm. in, in our, in our families, in our communities, how do we want to be at the other side of this? And, and hopefully we'll be closer. Hopefully yep. we'll be healthier. Yeah, definitely. That's what we, that's the goal. Yep. Yeah. Joyce, I, I, I just want to thank you so much. I adore you. I think, you know, I, I'm not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole when I say to some degree, every student who's come through this campus has been touched by your work because we have been. And so I'm just grateful for you. I'm grateful for the pioneer that you are and, and the things that you've done. And on behalf of all the families we get to work with, we're indebted to you for your goodness, your research, and your passion for this work. Thank you. Thank you, Norm. You stay well and take care of all those little munchkins you're, you've got there. <laughs> we will do just that. Thank you, Joyce. And I'll, I'll look forward to when we can uh, find another little restaurant there in Cambridge. <laughs> yes, yes, by all means. Thanks. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye.